You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. How are you? I'm psyched up for a science pack show this morning. We do have a science pack show. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning. You well? I, uh, I am. I'm recovering. Uh, it, it was uh, recovering. Yeah, recovering. Big night out on the juice, or no, no ARC grant deadline. So got grants in. Semester starts. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to be back in front of lecture next week. All right. So many people doing the grant completion dance, happy dance. Yeah, I think you know, I'm, I do miss it a little bit. I miss the because I'm a bit of a gambler. I had a problem when I was a child, and uh, I like the gamble of putting in the grants because you know. I mean, it's sort of a high-end gamble, you know, one in ten. I mean, if you go to the Greyhounds, you can narrow it down to one in five, guaranteed. I always say unis should take their money to the track rather than the ARC and the NHMRC, but hey. Well, you know, with science budgets shrinking. Yeah, yeah, it's getting harder. Liv's doing our Twitter feed, folks, so if you don't like the sound of our voices, you can get the same information by uh, watching your Twitter feed. I know that's a popular thing these days. In the studio, though, we're going to have a grand total of six guests today, which is, I think, a PB for the show. Um, if anyone who's been on it uh, or listened longer than I've been on it, which I think is 23 years, uh, knows of more guests during the previous years, let me know. Um, and first up in the studio is Donna Stolzenberg. Now, Donna is the director of the Melbourne Homeless Collective. Welcome to the studio, Donna. Thank you. Now, it's great to have you in here. I was uh, trolling a few people I dislike on Facebook the other day, and uh, Dr. Tristel and, and others, no, um, and someone sent me this amazing link to this Melbourne Period Project, which you've started up, which yes. just sounded extraordinary. And we don't always do sort of community announcement type um, guests on the program, but because this sort of fits under the, the umbrella of mental health, I thought it was entirely appropriate. So tell us a bit about what the Melbourne Period Project is is and what the goals are, you know, what you want to try and achieve. Sure, yeah. So Melbourne Period Project, uh, what we do is we collect donations of sanitary items and we make them up into period packs and take them out for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, currently, people who are either on the street or many of those in crisis and transitional housing are forced mm-hmm. to choose between food or sanitary items. Uh, we look after not only women but trans men as well because uh, that's people transitioning from female to male. So. Yep. So what we're wanting to do is um, alleviate that stress every month of where am I going to get my sanitary items from and, you know, can I eat this week or, you know, am I having to choose between the two? Um, So we do that by... People can either donate $5, which is the cost of a period pack. We have... uh, It's not just pads and tampons in the period pack. We put hand sanitizer, liners, wipes, disposable bags, everything for menstrual management that they need Mm -hmm. uh, for that month. The packs are designed really to sort of cope with the average period uh, for the average time. Um, Of course, you know, if people need more, they can certainly get more. Mm. We go out usually two or three times a week to find the people who are rough sleeping, so that's those in parks, under bridges, the people on the streets to make sure that they've got access. But we also have our packs with a few other agencies and organisations around Melbourne as well. So if we're not there, they know where they can actually come and get the packs. Mm. I think it's just something that most women can identify with, you know, that feeling where you where you go into your handbag and you realise, oh, my gosh, I've, I've, I've 
run out of tampons or pads and, and you know as yourself as a, as a woman you you know you've, you've got to be prepared and plan ahead but then you know layering that over you know being um uh, homeless or without guaranteed income and shelter you know I, it's just it's an incredible problem that i just think not many people have really thought about yeah that's right and i mean if we get our period all of a sudden you know we can just pop into the bathroom or into a store and grab some things or you know there's usually something around left over from last month uh people on the street can't do that um you know often people are finding themselves leaving places quite suddenly especially people who are experiencing domestic um, abuse and they go with nothing so Mm. these you know and when people are on the street too their health is usually compromised so their period might be irregular um, it might be arriving more often or less often so they can't always uh, time when they're going to have it and um, the choices that they have to make if they don't have the right products the choices are just horrific you know they've either have to steal or steal money to get the products Mm. Mm. use in a appropriate products um you know articles of clothing or even socks or you know whatever whatever they can find um and if they don't use any product of course you know it they can't access um things like outreach services food vans um they're forced to pretty much hide away ruin clothing um the the on ongoing um health effects as well from inappropriate products causing infections um Mm. it just the knock-on effect from it is just horrendous it's not just about the sanitary items you know what we're replacing is not only dignity but health and, it, and it's quite stressful, I imagine. So there's, there's a mental health aspect to that. And, and I think there is still a stigma in society about talking about periods, you know, and talking about menstruation, you know, in, on a public radio station. Yeah. You know, and um, I think it's quite bold that you've called yourself the Melbourne Period Project. Like, you haven't run away from that. Oh, exactly. We've put that name right in the middle, you know, of our title so people know what we're about. Uh, we want to destigmatize the words menstruation, period, tampons, pads. We talk about them quite freely. Um, we talk about exactly what we're there for. So we're actually at uh, Mooney Valley Festival today. So if you come up to our store, we'll tell you exactly what we're about. There's no skirting around it. You know, it's not nice things for ladies. It's we're talking about periods, menstruation pads, tampons, mm. and uh, menstrual management, basically. Mm. Well, natural biological processes. I mean, that's that's the way I like to think about this. This is something that happens, and no, it doesn't involve the devil or, or any <laughs> of the those attributes that over the centuries have been you know attributed to it and, and stayed in in our societal thinking actually to some degree. And you know, this is still something that. It's hidden away. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm quite happy when my wife, on the rare occasion that she sends me to the supermarket, you know, I quite boldly grab those packs and whack them down on the conveyor and say, yep. Yeah. Knows. You know, it's like, you know, what's the big deal? You know, we don't think about other medications as problematic or other other sanitary items as problematic, but these ones have this stigma and it's... That's right, yeah. yeah. If, if you get a blood nose and you need a tissue, no one's looking big away deal. from you and yeah. shunning you because your nose is bleeding, but mm. because it's menstrual management, a lot of people shy away from it. But we've got men who are drop-off points for us as mm-hmm. well who think mm-hmm. what we do is great, so quite a few of them are more than happy to promote it through their workplace. Uh, they have wives or, or um, sisters or daughters you know they've all got mothers so um there's quite a few males out there that that come on board our team and and help to promote what we do yeah now uh, i was going to say so how do we get involved okay so one of the the best ways is we've got there's quite a few areas that we need assistance in well um people can be a drop-off point for us so we like to have that um, close proximity for anyone who wants to donate product uh do a drive through your work jump on our facebook page or our website and you can see exactly where we are 
Um, if, if you donate $5, we're a registered charity, so any money over $2 is tax deductible. So if you donate $5, that pays for a period pack for a person for a month with everything in it. So basically you're saving someone that stress and worry for an entire month with what they're going to do um, yeah. when they get their period. Um, details of that are on our Facebook page. There's a how to donate button. Um, you can be a volunteer drop-off point. You can come and help us pack. We've got a warehouse in Port Melbourne now. So many ways that people can actually get involved with what we do. Uh, we're also in Sydney and Brisbane now. So we've got Sydney Period Project, Brisbane Period Project, and we've got hubs in Geelong and Gippsland and up in the Murray region too. So mm. we're, we're over about 70% of Victoria at the Donna, look, it's absolutely fantastic you're doing this. And the website is melbourneperiodproject.org.au, so pretty mm. easy to remember. I think, um, put in perspective, people, it's one cup of coffee, depending on where you buy it, I suppose, but yeah. one one cup of coffee for this to happen a month. I know people have big decisions to make generally about whether they get Stan or, or Netflix for that $10 <laughs> a month. But, but, you know, this is something that, as you say, the mental health um, aspects of this and, and that, you know, often these people are in a challenged position in yeah, terms of mental health much. already and to have to deal with this as well is is just pushes them even further into a, a dangerous area. So um, we do a lot of mental health on this show and we have guests coming up on um, that with regards to what's happening down at the children's hospitals. So it is an important aspect. Thanks so much for coming in, Donna, and I hope uh, you do get more and more support. This is one of those projects to me that every time I, I mentioned this to someone during the week after I saw the details, everyone had that same, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that yeah, type yeah. approach. So hopefully a few people will have the same reaction when they hear this today and we'll, we'll get on board and, and support it. So thanks for chatting to us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Donna Stolzenberg is the director of the Melbourne Homeless Collective. And if you want to help out there with the Period Project folks, have a look at the website. It's melbourneperiodproject, all is one word, .org.au. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to 3 Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. Um, we have two more guests in the studio now from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute here in Melbourne. Dr. Frank Mascura and Dr. Meredith Rayner are both in the area of child neuropsychology. Frank Meredith, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Thanks. Now, you're working, uh, I suppose, less on the kids and more on the families, mm. which is interesting. We don't, we've had a lot of guests from the Murdoch uh, over the years, typically about the kids. But the one thing we forget is how the families are travelling and what's going on with, with their mental health mm. and, 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 as a consequence, their health and how they can, um, how they can support the, the broader family. Yeah. So uh, what, what is the scenario inter internationally? Frank, I might start with you mm. in terms of what, what we think about this. I mean, is it standard practice for, for children's hospitals around the world to take note of this? Yeah. Well, uh, interestingly, I mean, the... The, the hospitals do, the staff do an amazing job supporting the children mm. and supporting the families. But as we all know, it comes down to, to resources and, and funding and they, there just isn't the, the, the resources to support uh, parents in terms of their long-term mental health. Uh, and we know that that's through, through our research and research internationally that uh, there's the majority of parents tend to do well, but there, there is a, a small proportion of families that really have significant mental health issues, not only depression and anxiety, but also acute stress disorder that leads on to more long-term chronic illness such as 
even post-traumatic stress disorder in the long term. Mm. Are we we talking about um, parents for whom the children are in long-term stay conditions or ones that are just there briefly? Is there a a difference between the two? Not necessarily. Interestingly, we we know that the the medical factors such as the the type of illness, Mm -hmm. the severity of the illness, the length of stay in hospital aren't necessarily important predictors of the, the parents' responses and outcomes. What what is uh, what are important predictors are the parents what parents bring into the situation so pre existing mental health problems prior trauma experience uh, and also their subjective appraisal of the the child's illness so what their beliefs and thoughts are. Uh, in terms of the impact that the, the illness is going to have on mm. the child and the family. Now, I, um, you know, as, as most parents have at some stage, mm. made use of the children's facilities in, in a minor way. Mm. Um, I don't ever recall a scenario where I was quizzed or did a survey or anything to gauge exactly those parameters on the way mm. in. Is that something that's done anywhere in the world? Do people look at, you know, what is that state? I mean, we've heard there's been a lot in the news about hospitals not releasing children mm-hmm. to environments that they feel are yeah. inappropriate, but is there the testing in a general sense of whether that environment will be appropriate? Yeah, well, not, not generally, not generally. Uh, research over the past decade or so is, is really start, is starting to become clear that we should be doing that. Mm-hmm. And at the Children's Hospital, in particular in the Oncology Centre, where we're starting to screen parents, uh, but we feel that um, it, it's important to screen parents uh, more broadly to see which parents do need that extra support uh, because we know that parent mental health issues have has not only impacts on the family functioning but also the recovery of the ill child mm. now you've been working the two of you on this take a breath program Meredith might turn to you now to give us a bit sure. of a an overview of, of what this is this is specifically for parents of the children yeah. yep that's exactly right so what we're doing is a research trial um, looking at uh, screening parents in a Um, whose children have a life-threatening illness or Mm -hmm. injury. So um, we're in the cancer or the oncology section and paediatric intensive care, um, brain injury, the neurology section, Mm -hmm. and cardio, cardiology as well. So we are looking at which parents, as Frank said, are more likely to be at risk of um, long-term problems and offering them to uh, participate in a a group program that we run. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we... um, send home iPads to them because yep. uh, access is really a problem for these families as you can imagine you know many of them spend a lot of time in and out of hospital already and don't have the resources or just not the capacity to come back to the hospital for the traditional face-to-face group yeah, yeah. Um, so we send them home an iPad and do video conferencing and so they participate in a group but from their lounge rooms they sit with their iPads and talk to the other families and um, go through the intervention with us over a period of weeks. And, and, and in it, just, I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm going immediately to the, the, the issues that might come up there. I mean, are these iPads sort of enabled with 3 or 4G and so forth so there's no issue with connections and these people can... I mean, because this is the sort of thing that immediately comes to mind Spot for me. On. You know, take this stuff home and, oh, <laughs> damn it, I can't, you know, the video conferencing is not working, blah, blah, blah. You know, exactly. how, do you, how do you, especially the most challenged parents would be in exactly that situation? Sure. How do you deal with that? Sure, and we have families from rural and remote areas mm. of Australia who um, come to the children's because some of the treatments are only available at the children's hospital in Melbourne. Yep. Uh, and it's been a real challenge. It's not 
uh, it's unusual for this kind of program. It's new to be doing it online. So we do send them home data and uh, enough data for the group and we monitor that and we give make sure they've got enough data to finish the groups and we do what we call a technical check beforehand so mm-hmm. we get them online and show them how it all works and have a bit of a practice the week before and but we still sometimes have technical difficulties yeah, sure. you know uh, can be a bit frustrating occasionally but but most of all the time it's works really well and how does uh, you know well how, how does it compare to being in the room. I mean, you know, we've often had this scenario where people are resistant to using some of these video conferencing type things. I mean, video conferencing has been around for 20 years, and frankly, our workforces just do not use it effectively at all, in my opinion. This is... You know, all of a sudden they're presented with this instead of being in a room in a support group or with with you guys in the room. How does how does that work? How does it work? It's a really interesting question, and it was one that challenged us when we first started um, this program. Certainly, the clinicians are not used to doing therapy mm. uh, with people in so- not without someone in the room with them. Um, so all the issues around picking up body language and being able to see their face, and if they get upset or you know it's harder. Um, so we thought it would be more challenging. We also wondered how parents would go opening up to a screen but in fact we found the opposite what the families say to us is we're in our safe space we're home in our lounge room we're not in a in a room in the hospital which is an unusual environment our kids are asleep in the other room we know they're there mm-hmm. and the other benefit we're finding is that they're learning to do the skills such as mindfulness for example in the place where they're normally going to have to do it so right. they don't come into us in a quiet room with the door shut and you know be able to focus really easily their mobile phone rings their kids call out you know they have to learn to do mindfulness in that situation Mm. and so that's a benefit presumably there too um the bit that ends at some point i remember having gone through various times of therapy in my life for various conditions and quite happily you know able to say that um there was always a point where it got chopped off Mm. and you know that safe place that was created is gone all of a sudden Mm, so presumably that that continues for them for a longer term so I, I was curious about the response of, of parents because there's always this expectation you're being strong for your kids. You're supposed to manage your stress, not show it. And like the, the perception, you know, parents are supposed to be super u- human in, yeah. in that sense. So, so what's the response like of, of parents when they realize there's a support there and it's okay to need help? Well, that, that's an interesting uh, point, and and that's the reason why we've called it the Take a Breath Program because um, what we what we've noticed clinically and in research is that that that's ex- the exact response that parents take that they need to be the strong ones to be there for their children, and then several months down the track when uh, their their child perhaps starts to recover and they go back to their normal routine, that's when the parents fall mm. in a heap. Mm. So that's that's when they've actually got the time and the headspace to to think about what they've actually been through. Um, and uh, hence, that's the period when we actually run the intervention mm. at that point. I'm, I'm curious on that note because the one thing I can imagine is a poor uptake from us guys in the in the group um are, are you seeing a good uptake from fathers into this program because that's something that you know i can imagine would be problematic getting them involved in anything anything to do with mental health yeah sure and uh those of us who worked with, with families for a long period of time know that it's nearly mm. always the mum and it's often the mum who um is at home and you know so working mums those kind of things it's harder for them to participate in traditional ways where it's a lovely thing we're finding is that we're getting quite a lot of dads and certainly mums and dads together sometimes on the couch together at the same time talking right. about these things. Sometimes dad will take the iPad to work 
work and he can join the group from work while mum joins the group from home or vice versa. Um, we've had a dads kind of interrupt concreting or whatever they're doing to pick up their iPad and join the group with us. And the lovely thing, I guess, therapeutically for us is that now they've got a language that they can talk about together and they're learning together and, you know, we have a break in the middle of the session and they'll go off and make a coffee and talk about it or and come back and say, oh, you know, we were just talking about this and we've noticed this. Doing it together is really lovely. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering... Um, uh, how many families are you currently supporting and are you still recruiting people into this group? Um, and also, uh, how how and when will you start to know um, how effective the program is? So, uh, we, we are still recruiting um, and we've probably gotten about... So, it's a randomised control trial. So, we're getting families that are eligible, randomising them to either the treatment group or a control group. And at the moment, we've probably got about 20 or 30 in each group, hoping to get up to about uh, 80 or 90. Uh, We've still got another year, probably about 18 months worth of groups still to run. Uh, and then probably another six months or so of data analysis mm. and, and writing up. So probably about another two years away from knowing the effectiveness of the program. Look, I, I mean, I can't imagine this wouldn't be effective. It's one of those things that seems to be when you hear about it, the no-brainer that we should be doing this. And we often talk about that end-to-end version of care. Um, and it has to be the whole family unit. It has to be everyone. Is there any um, work around the world in doing similar things, but at the other end of the spectrum where people are looking after their parents and so forth because it's it's maybe not as intense as as when it's a child but certainly it's as it's long term it can be very very devastating to to families and and you know the the mental health aspects are, are quite often forgotten yeah and that's a really important group and in particular um with our aging population it's certainly an important thing uh for us as a society to be looking into in terms of the research around that i'm not really all that aware of it just because we're we've got our heads in the the pediatric Mm, literature but i would imagine that there'd be a a real paucity of of interventions and programs for for carers as well Mm. well certainly there's a need so maybe uh Maybe if we get uh, it right at one end, you guys can then uh, pour it out. But, look, it's it's a fantastic program. hope it goes well because, mm, um, you. Uh, you know, for any of the parents out there listening who are in this situation, it's a gutting experience. And there is, you know, even, even for minor things when I've been there, you're totally freaked out. And you, as Dr Ray said, you stay strong for those few hours. And hopefully if you get home later the same night, you, you know, you, you feel like crap for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, for parents in situations where they're in there for, for weeks or, or for the full term of life I mean I, I cannot imagine what they go through so mm. um, hope, hopefully this will go well and it will be something that can be rolled out more extensively in all the children's hospital all the children's you know pediatric locations throughout the state and in the country so well done guys um, thank you thanks thanks, for, thanks, thanks so much for coming in thanks for having us Dr Frank Muscura and uh, Dr Meredith Rayner both uh, in child neuropsychology at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute down at the Melbourne Children's Campus we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment we're going to be talking about uh chemical engineering which is dr ray's favorite topic you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 rrfm in melbourne australia 
You're listening to 3 R. This is Einstein and Go-Go. We're a science program. I'm Dr Shane. In the studio, we have two guests from the Melbourne School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Professor Sandra Kentish and Dr Greg Martin are in the studio. Welcome, guys. Nice to be here. Thank you, Dr Shane. Now, um, you're working in a really interesting area, which is how to get more carbon dioxide um, into microalgae, which is probably not something people think about on a day-to-day basis, but it could be very, very important for our future. So what I want to do first, I want to start with you, Greg, and just talk about microalgae for a moment before we get into the Mm. engineering process. How does microalgae normally get carbon dioxide in and, and, you know, what sort of parameters affect how much it takes up and so forth? I mean, we see this stuff growing around the house and so forth and it seems to be relentless. Mm. Um, But, you know, what what is that really like? Yeah, so microalgae are microscopic photosynthetic organisms that are reasonably simple um, compared to higher plants in terms of their structure. And that's sort of one of their advantages for trying to, to grow them in large scale is that you can grow them more efficiently and get higher yields per unit land. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're trying to grow them in, in ponds, they're going to get their CO2 through natural uh, diffusion, which is quite limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, if you want to grow them at high productivities, <coughs> you want to maximise the utilisation of the, the sunlight, which really is the, the raw ingredient for producing the material. So you want to make sure that they're limited by light, not by carbon dioxide. So, so when you say limited by carbon dioxide, I mean, if, I, if I've got that sitting on the top of a pond, I mean, there's, there's plenty of CO2 around, presumably, but is that literally not enough for them at that point to, to grow to optimum? What, what's the limiting factor? if they're just sitting in the pond? So it's, it's enough if they're in relatively dilute cultures, like mm-hmm. they, they are in, in the environment, um, but in large-scale production you want that culture to be as dense and as concentrated as possible. And at this stage you just can't supply enough CO2 via passive diffusion to, to, to allow them to grow right. at their maximal rate. Right. And we're talking about here you'd have these things in like big vats or ponds or uh, describe what that would look like the the industrial version i I have this image of this you know vast lake covered in microalgae or something so yeah that that is one of the possibilities people are looking at harvesting them from um just more natural open water sources Mm -hmm. but probably the the most uh standard approach these days is to consider what are called open raceway ponds which are basically large ditches in the in the dirt with sort of slowly circulating water okay um and then you've got to find a way of delivering the co2 to mm-hmm. those ponds there's right. also people who are looking at various elaborate photobioreactors where they're housed in tubes and, and so on uh, but that tends to increase the amount of investment required mm. to get those facilities up yeah. and running and energy i imagine right so just an understanding there's co2 in the air and it's a very small fraction and then there's even less in water but I guess, I, you know, I'm always thinking of the aquariums I have where I have algae problems all the time, but that's really quite, quite a little. I mean, when you say you can't get carbon dioxide in it, it's basically, am I correct, the algae effectively act like a sponge, and there's, there's so much algae, there's like no CO2 they, in they, the water, yeah, basically. They gobble it up more quickly than it can be replaced. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it's, so it's so dense. This is, when you say high concentration, this isn't like an algae bloom in... And a lake or something where oh no it's terrible and hard to boat with. This is like almost viscous kind of. I'm not going to say slime, but it's got a goopish quality to it, doesn't it? Uh, when you get rid of some of the water, it becomes okay. like a Vegemite. But in, in the ponds, it's it's more dilute than that. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, the light can can barely penetrate by the time you've 
got them at high enough concentrations to be I definitely want you guys to use the term goopish in one of your papers. (laughs) I think it's a a good term. Now, Sandra, I might uh, move over to you now because you've been, you know, you're the the chemical engineer, as it were, and and, um, have been working on ways to, I guess, trick the algae in a sense, microalgae in a sense, and get the get more co2 in there now you know from my sort of lame sort of background it would it would seem you know it will just blow more co2 over the stuff isn't that the way but how do you, i mean how do you go about that in a in a sort of chemical engineering sense yeah so i mean the classical way is to do exactly what you talk about is to pump gaseous co2 as bubbles bubble it essentially right, yeah. through the microalgae and that's what people have tended to look at um but that's that's got two issues uh firstly it's quite expensive from a the energy point of view to do mm-hmm. that you've got to compress the gas and and push it through uh little holes if you don't push it through small enough if the bubbles aren't small enough they just rise to the atmosphere before the co2 can be absorbed so you you lose uh, anything you've put in mm. back out to the atmosphere so they've got to be small and that means that the energy required is quite large the other issue is that you've got either two options you can either use pure co2 which works well or you can use raw flue gas out of power stations the advantage of using raw flue gas is you can um, eliminate sending that carbon dioxide to the atmosphere so it's really about co2 utilization and stopping global warming by using the co2 mm. to grow mm. more algae to create more fuels and to end up with a renewable fuel source. So people have looked at pumping raw flue gas around the ponds, uh, but it tends to kill the algae because it's got contaminants in it. So it's not um, it's not ideal because it's got all sorts of other nasties in there. Mm. That, uh, that sadly normally go into the atmosphere. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise normally go into the atmosphere. <laughs> I think there's a message there, folks. It kills the microalgae. <laughs> But let's pump it up into the atmosphere. Yep. So take so, a deep breath, Doctor Shane. Yeah, no, I just I, you know sometimes you got to you got to join the dots. Um, so so what's the alternative? I mean, how are you guys going about doing this? Because so at the, at the same time, we've got a large group that's been working on capturing the carbon dioxide out of flue gas. Uh, out of flue gases uh, using a very established chemical engineering technique that involves converting it, uh, absorbing it into a solvent, into a liquid. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem with that approach from the point of view of creating pure carbon dioxide is that it takes a lot of energy to get the carbon dioxide back out of the solvent. So you can capture it quite easily, but to recover it as pure gas is energy intensive. Which we don't want to do. Yeah, correct. Particularly if it's more energy intensive than burning the fuel in yeah, the power station yeah. in the first place. Uh, so what we've developed is a way of pumping the actual solvent through the microalgae beds. So we pump the solvent that contains the carbon dioxide through, essentially through drinking straws that we place uh, we've only done it in the lab, but ideally you would place at the bottom of the uh, microalgae beds. Uh, and we found that the algae will quite happily take the carbon dioxide out of the solvent th- through the straws, through the walls of the drinking straws, uh, right. if you like. So we we never have to create gaseous CO2. So, so I mean, is, is that a surprise to you, um, Greg, that the, you know, all of a sudden this microalgae is doing this different thing to, to the way it normally operates? Or is, is it taking so much CO2 normally just out of the fluid that it's in that this is stock standard process. I mean, what, what's happening? Is something changing there? Yeah, I mean, it, it sees a molecule of CO2 the doesn't same way, care. whether it came from the atmosphere or came out of the solvent through the membrane. So yeah. it doesn't care as long as it's got enough. Yeah. And and when we... I'm oh, sorry, Ray, you... 
what Sandra said. So that's like a double whammy in energy savings. First, you're not having to bubble the CO2 that you would normally have to buy. But then in the CO2 capture part, you're capturing the CO2, but then never having to get it out of the solvent. So in those processes, you want to use the solvent again and again. So the algae is letting you recycle the solvent to go clean up the flue gas again. Mm, exactly. mm. That's that's brilliant. Mm. Yeah. Oh, sorry. That's, is that a good idea? <laughs> sorry. I'm editorializing. I shouldn't have. So that has a really big impact in both of those processes and making them energetically and economically favorable. Is that correct? Yes, it does. Uh, I'd add, we've got to be a little bit careful here. The amount of carbon dioxide we can capture using the microalgae is trivial in terms of the total amount of carbon dioxide that coal-fired power plants are producing and sending out to the atmosphere. So we, this approach will only ever use about 2% maximum of that CO2, but it is effective and it's a really good way of making the microalgae grow, which is, say, it has a double whammy. So this sounds like a fantastic... Um uh, technology for uh, what you're doing, but I'm really wondering about what the other future applications could be now that you've got this technique. I mean, we talk a lot about advanced manufacturing and being more efficient and coming up with um, ways to do things that are better for the environment. How can you see this technology expanding out? Um, well, it, it might be... A, a, again, it's it's useful for growing microalgae. I'll throw to Greg and tell you all the other wonderful things you can use microalgae for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in, in the really long run, people are looking at microalgae as potentially a, a way of replacing some of our dependence on fossil fuels. So you can create biodiesel or, or other fuels, jet fuels and things from either microalgae themselves or the oils that they can accumulate. Um, but they can also be used as a, as a protein source. Um, but, but both of those types of products are quite low uh, value. Um, so we really have to get the, the economy, uh, the economics down um, a lot. And but this is sort of one way of, of doing that while mm. also capturing the mm. CO2. Um, in the shorter term, people are making higher value products. Um, the, the algae themselves, such as spirulina, um, but also beta-carotene and astaxanthin, these coloured pigments that have a lot higher value um, and can mm. cope with a higher production cost. Yeah, I mean, this stuff, uh, I just think back to our description of, you know, bubbling CO2 through these things. I mean, presumably those bubbles go out at some point. You know, I mean, when, when you talk about 2% use, I mean, that's, you know, it's marginally better than just pumping it into the atmosphere. But if, if you're doing it the way you're doing it, as Ray said before, you can just keep re recycling this mm. round the path and you don't have to, you know, have a one-shot go while we've got 2%, good luck. But presumably if there was a way to store some of that CO2 coming out of the, the power station so that you could use it over a protracted period, can, can, you, can you up that 2% to a point where you're using the majority of it over time or is it just um, too much? No, so we can use all... Uh we're not losing any CO2 to the atmosphere mm. using this. It's just that the amount of microalgae we can produce realistically, even when you have kilometre square ponds of yep. this stuff, is limited. And the total CO2 consumption, so it's limited by the amount of microalgae you can potentially use. Right, right. Uh, we're putting out huge quantities of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Yeah. And so that's where we've ended up, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at geological storage of the carbon dioxide. Uh, there's just too much. Mm. Um, and so it's not like we're losing any out of the process we're talking about it's just that we can only utilize a certain amount given the total amount of microalgae we could possibly grow yeah, yeah. time to design some new microalgae greg 
Mm. Stuff's not cutting it. <laughs> um, look, it's really interesting work. I think these processes are, are fascinating. And when you, you come up with these ways that don't involve what seem like really, really ridiculous ideas of, you know, pumping the stuff back into the atmosphere, it's, it's a really good outcome. So good work. Um, keep it up. And I think um, we will uh, no doubt be hearing about this technology in the years to come. So thanks so much for chatting to us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Sandra Kentish and Dr. Greg Martin from the Melbourne School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're going to take a break and then we'll be talking in the moment about uh, teeth. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio, we have an evolutionary biologist, Dr. Alistair Evans from Monash University. Alistair, welcome to 3 R. Thanks for having me. Now, you've had a bit of a uh, coup this week. You've published a paper in the journal Nature, which I'm told is apparently important. I thought it was an agricultural journal. I <laughs> uh, no. Uh, look, for those of you who don't know, folks, if you haven't listened to our program before, Nature is one of the best journals in the world, and it's not trivial to get things in there. You've been working on the issue of teeth in, um, I guess, things that we dig up, so paleontological yep. sort of things. Tell us a bit about that. I mean, it seems to me as though whenever we see a picture of something, you know, some uh, very, very ancient uh, dig, there seem to be teeth there, but that's not always the case, is it? Well, the thing is that teeth are the most common fossil we ever find mm-hmm. because they are the hardest thing in the body. Yeah. So if you try to break something up and bury it for a few million years, the thing that's going to be left most likely is the teeth. So... But even though there are a lot of teeth, we're not going to find every single one all the time. So we do want to find ways of making the best of the fossils that we do find. Mm. So why is it important that we get the teeth? I mean, I imagine every part of the fossil is is important, but there seems to have been quite a focus on teeth. Why, Why is that important? Teeth tell us an awful lot about an animal in the past, particularly mammals. So the teeth are the things that they often use to eat the food. So if you can interpret how they use their teeth to get their food, process the food, then we can tell uh, it was a carnivore, it was a herbivore. Once you've got that a bit of information, you can often say, well, it lived in a rainforest, it lived in a desert, things like that. So it tells us a lot about uh, the environment in which it lived, and we always want to know about that. It also tells us lots of things about uh, the way the animal is made in the embryo. So we can actually look at uh, the tiny daily increments of the enamel as it's laid down. And if a, um, if a, a fossil baby or a um, young child dies at, any partic- at, at a particular age, we can tell how old it is to the day that it died because of the way that these little um, daily increments are set down. So the tree ring version of... It's even better than the tree rings. It's even better than tree rings. Yeah. And and so in a a person's life, how... Is there a difference between sort of our molars and our front teeth in that process or is it the same throughout the the entire mouth? The same. It's pretty much the same throughout the whole mouth. Okay. Now... One of the things I, I, I find fascinating in all of this is the, the evolution of various species as we, as we sort of take that journey through time. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get into that, though, give us the quick lesson on how you know a carnivore from a herbivore based on their teeth. I, I mean, and what are we? <laughs> we're a bit of both, right? We're, we're sort of somewhere in between. Yeah, so how, so, do, you, how do you tell? Well, uh, the easiest way is that we know that animals like cats and dogs, mm-hmm. they have at the back of their teeth a big blade if you open your cat's mouth or your dog's mouth, you'll see this big, like a guillotine mm-hmm. that comes down, okay. V-shaped guillotine that cuts. If you look in a sheep's mouth, you see lots and lots of ridges all the way over the surface. Now, one of the fundamental differences between them is that if you eat meat, you could basically eat a whole lizard. 
swallow it, it would be digested and you'd get everything out of it. If you grab a piece of grass, much smaller, swallow it, it's going to go all the way through you. You're not going to mm-hmm. get anything out of it. So to be able to get enough energy out of it, you, it's out of the grass, you need to chop it up really finely. So that's what the teeth do. So actually some of my earlier research has shown that the teeth in herbivores are much more complex than the teeth in carnivores. And you can measure that using geographic information systems and all sorts of other things. Right. Does that mean that herbivores are a more evolved sort of addition in terms of their teeth from carnivores or is it just something that 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 grouping has evolved in its in its own right they're specialized to their own way so um if you look at what we might consider the earliest mammals the primitive mammals they had something in between in uh sort of a three cusp thing three three bumpy bits with a few blades the carnivores have got simpler and the herbivores have got more complex so they're each adapting to their own part uh, okay so now take us on a bit of a journey through time here we're you know, we have our teeth as they are at the moment, but this has changed over the the eons. Yes. How how has that occurred, and how the you know digging these things up tell that story? I mean, what what sort of information have you pulled managed to pull out from from those those fossils that we found? Okay, so if we go back in time around seven million years or so, we get um, the first animals, the first species that split off from uh, the great apes, from chimpanzees, Mm -hmm. gorillas, um, bonobos. Uh, They were relatively small and um, their teeth are um, different from ours in that often their teeth are biggest at the back of the mouth. So they've got big wisdom teeth, you could say. Now, what this means about what they ate is a bit um, controversial, but they probably ate... um, They probably ate uh, more plants and maybe nuts. So there were some... uh, there were some very big-skulled and big-teethed hominins back then, um, some of the Paranthropus australopiths. Um, but what we were looking at was whether uh, there was any similarity between those early hominins and our own species in, uh, in the genus Homo. And what we found was that in those early ones, uh, they have these teeth, big teeth at the back of the mouth, whereas us our biggest teeth are sort of in the middle of the hmm. the jaw okay and the the reason we were looking at this is that we really wanted to know are there any general patterns or constraints in the way that humans have evolved so people have dug up fossils for for decades and said well this species sort of looks a bit like this it has teeth that are this size and so we interpret it both who it's related to and what it might have eaten so uh, quite a few years ago we did some work looking at mice so mice are one of the great uh, mammal models, understanding about how they evolve and how they develop. And when we looked at that, we found that looking through many different mammal species, uh, many different mice and rats, that um, the teeth are always a particular um, set of sizes. And if you imagine three teeth in a row, the middle teeth, middle tooth is always halfway between in size, the one mm. at the front and the back. Yeah. Very simple rule, mm, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. Um, so but this is this thing you, you, you guys uh, call the inhibitory cascade. That's right. Finally a biological process with a cool name, can I just say? <laughs> I yeah. think that is a cool name. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do want to point out that, that the moment Alistair said that, Dr. Crystal and I were like using our tongues to try to measure the size <laughs> of our teeth. <laughs> Depends on how evolved you are, yeah. people. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we found this rule in mice, mm. and we wanted to know how does it apply to humans and uh, through, throughout human evolution. And we found that it works extremely well, um, particularly at the front of the mouth. So you've got um, in kids up to about two years old, you have these uh, back deciduous teeth. Uh, and then you've got the molars that grow when you're about six or so. You start getting these the, the 
the adult teeth. So they're all sort of part of the same series. And we see that um, those teeth follow this pattern extremely well. And what this means is that we found that the two main groups of hominins, australopiths and homo species, they follow it slightly differently. Mm. So that we can basically take a, an isolated tooth out of these five teeth in a row say it's an australopith and from that single size of that tooth we can say what the rest of the four teeth would look like wow yeah and we can do the same thing in homo that you take a, a single tooth and you can predict what the rest of the teeth would look like and and in terms of those predictions how close well i suppose you can only determine this for where you have the full the full mouth model or you yeah. have the you know maybe in in, in the mouse or, or something where you've got it what do the statistics do as you go from tooth number one, which you've got to two to three to four? Because I can imagine, you know, as you know, as if one is the average of the two around it, then sooner or later you get to a point where you know you're only forty percent right. I mean, how far can you go? Um, in I guess the, the 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 point of this question is, you know, you, you dig something up and mm-hmm. has three available teeth. How much can you reconstruct? So we found that uh, doing this reconstruction works best if you look at the mean of a species. So you dig up lots of fossils all in the same place, or you, know, you can mm-hmm. say they're basically all the same species. When we do that, we can reconstruct with 80 to 90% accuracy. Now, if you say you take uh, an individual fossil and you say, this is, you know, he was an individual, uh, and you say, well, we've only got two teeth here, we reconstruct what the next one was. And we can test that by finding fossils that only have two or three teeth right. and then say, how well do our predictions predict that? They're not as good. So that seems mm-hmm. to show that there's um, more variation within individuals than they're in among the species. So what we're really doing is predicting species evolution rather than individuals. Right. Uh, so is this predicting size or it is also predicting the, the bump pattern or the number of cusps on it that have to do with what they're eating? Because you said complex versus simpler there. Yeah, we are only really looking at size at the moment, but we know that there are a lot of correlations between size and complexity okay. because the bigger the tooth you have, mm. the more you could fit on it, more little bumps and stuff. Um, and we have looked in other, uh, we looked at other, th- when we looked at rodents, we found that uh, the proportions of the size uh, correlate well with their diet. So again, if you have a big first molar and a smaller second molar, they tend to be insectivorous or. Um, carnivorous mm. and as they become more equal in size they become more likely to be uh, grass eaters or mm-hmm. seed eaters how true is this t- sort of approach to the rest of the skeletal aspects of the body i mean presumably you know there'll be cases where you find a head um you know or, or, or less i mean do the same sort of approaches do you think work for the the rest of the the find we think so they're not necessarily in the same way if you could find a head and reconstruct the rest of the well, there body won't, there won't be heads either side of it you know, <laughs> sort of one head but yeah yeah but. that's right but we know that the same it, we, it seems that the same basic rule of the inhibitory cascade also applies to things like fingers you've mm, got your different yeah, phalanges yeah. running along You've got uh, the three main components of the arm or the mm-hmm. leg, the upper, the, the, the arm and the hand. Uh, you've got the vertebrae running along the back of your skull, your, your, your spine. Um, all of those different um, 
anatomical components seem to also follow the same rule. Mm. So in principle, by finding one part of a finger, you could predict what the rest of the finger would look like. Yeah. Look, it's very cool stuff, and I think uh, most people fail to accept sometimes that when one of these finds occurs, you know, if you, you find half a hand, you guys get, I know you guys get pretty excited, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's rarely this whole skeleton sitting there waving at you saying, hey, you know, I'm 100 million years old, you know, whatever, uh, <laughs> 7 million years old. You know, it, it, it is, it is a challenging field to get, yes. get complete skeletons. So, look, very interesting work. Congratulations on the paper in Nature, and uh, thanks so much for speaking to us, Alistair. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Dr. Alistair Evans is an evolutionary biologist from Monash University and has just uh, published this very exciting find in uh, the journal Nature. We are pretty much out of time. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Edith. Dr. Crystal, thanks so much for chatting. Always a pleasure. Dr. Ray, good to have you in the studio too. Always fun. Until next week, uh, thanks so much for listening and remember Remember, science is everywhere. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.